Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. On today's show, my guest is Roman Krisnarek, the author of The Good Ancestor, A Radical Prescription for Long-Term Thinking. We explore the idea of thinking long-term, and along the way, Roman takes us on a journey. We learn about some very long-term projects, a cathedral in Germany that took over 500 years to build, a clock being built in Texas designed to last 10,000 years, and a seed vault in the Arctic Circle designed to preserve seeds for 1,000 years. We learn about the importance of long-term thinking, the battle in our heads between our marshmallow brain and our acorn brain, why it's important to have a transcendent goal in our lives, how to move beyond the ego boundary, and why we should ask, how will I be remembered when I die? This conversation is a wild ride and an entertaining ride. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Roman as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Roman Krisnarek. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Roman Krasnarek, welcome to The Good Life. Fantastic to be on the program, Sean. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Well, your latest book, The Good Ancestor, explores this interesting and provocative question, how can we be good ancestors? Can you elaborate on what you mean when you invite us to confront this question? That phrase, good ancestor, is something I first discovered in the writings of Jonas Salk, who was the guy who discovered the polio vaccine back in the 1950s. And in later life, he said that there's one great question that humanity faces, and it's this, are we being good ancestors? And what he was thinking about was, look, never before have humans' actions had such consequences for the future, our capacity to press the nuclear button or our impacts on the natural world and the environment or the impacts of new technologies. And there's a real question there of, well, how are we going to be remembered by future generations because we impact on their lives so much? How are they going to judge us? And that's what being a good ancestor is all about. It's about kind of imagining your mind, projecting it forward. Because if you think about it for a moment, okay, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. And it's estimated that over the last 50,000 years, around 100 billion people have been born and died. But if we go forward 50,000 years, an estimated nearly 7 trillion people will be born, even assuming if this century's birth rates stabilize and remain constant. I mean, in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people will be born. And I've spent my life writing books about the good life, how to live, how to find fulfilling work, how to confront death, how to be more empathic. But something I've kind of missed, I think, when I've looked at all of this is, well, what about these future generations? You know, I've thought a lot about today and my life in this world and how do I you know, have a meaningful life for my kids and all those things. But then there are all these people coming in the future. And this new book, The Good Ancestor, is really about trying to bring them into the picture and into the conversation. One of the fascinating aspects of bringing the future ancestors into the conversation about how we live a good life and being more empathetic to people not yet born and future generations, what we bequeath to them is this idea of thinking long-term. And I thought it was one of the most fascinating parts of your book is how you explore, how do we think long-term? You've got a great quote. You say, we don't just think fast and slow as Daniel Kahneman taught us. We also think 
short and long because we've talked a little bit about Daniel Kahneman on this podcast. We also think short and long. So can you talk a little bit about long-term thinking and how it fits into this idea of being a good ancestor? Well, let me take you and your listeners into a bit of a journey into their own brains or our own brains, because actually inside our heads, there is a tug of war going on constantly between the drivers of short-term and long-term thinking. You know, do we party today or save for our pensions for tomorrow? Do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And of course, we are partly driven by immediate rewards and short-term gratification. That's a part of the brain I call the marshmallow brain, named after the famous psychology experiment from the 1960s, where, you know, as you probably know, a marshmallow was put in front of kids, and if they resisted eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. It turned out that most kids, about two-thirds of them, would snatch the treat. But that is not the whole story of who we are, because there's another part of our brain, what I call the acorn brain, and that's the bit that focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it lives at the front of our heads in a bit called the frontal lobe, particularly a part, if you want to know, called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Getting a bit technical there, but actually, we've got this more developed than most other creatures. So think of a chimpanzee. They plan ahead a bit. So they might get a branch off a tree and strip off the leaves to make a tool to stick into a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of these tools and set them aside for next week. But that is precisely what a human being will do, right? That's why we will save for our kids' educations. That's why we write song lists for our own funerals. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space by using this acorn part of our brain. So, you know, thinking of that Dan Kahneman thinking fast and slow, we also think short and long. And I think it's a part of ourselves that we haven't really tapped into enough. You know, just think about the buy now button, right? You know, our technology is designed to switch on that marshmallow brain. And just imagine if when you're about to press buy now, a little drop down menu came and you had an option to buy now, but also buy in a week or buy in a month or buy in a year or borrow from a friend. And you know, you press buy in a year and you get a little email a year later saying, well, do you really want that second yoga mat now? You know, I think our consumption habits would be totally different. I'm glad you brought up that buy now button because one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading about your breaking down of short-term thinking and long-term thinking is the way technology is sort of driving us to think short-term in many ways. You even mentioned in the book, we're carrying around these iPhones and they're just distraction machines. I mean, they're constantly drawing our attention to the latest alerts, social media. And we can, if we're not careful, find ourselves living in a very short-term reactive mode hour after hour and lacking that reflective long-term thinking that brought us the Great Wall, that helped us build cathedrals. Talk a little bit about that, that we're battling here some evolutionary forces and it seems to be quite challenging. I think there's a whole load of short-term drivers which are exacerbating our kind of marshmallow brain tendencies. Certainly, there are our phones, you know, and that's the most obvious sort of level of it. I mean, just think about, imagine you had a GPS in your car, which every time you put in where you wanted to go, it took you somewhere different. Well, that's what happens when we look at our phones, right? You know, you go to do something useful online, like book a doctor's appointment, and suddenly you're looking at YouTube replays of Game of Thrones highlights or something. Well, that's what I do anyway. And, you know, we're constantly being taken away from what we want to do. That is immersing us in a state of continual partial attention. Here we are locked in the now and the future 
is disappearing. So it's partly because of our phones. I think there's other forces as well. I mean, I think there are economic forces. I think speculative capitalism brings us so much into the moment. I mean, the, the average amount of time people hold shares for has dropped in the last 30 years from about five years to about three months. And of course, then we've got nanosecond speed trading and all that kind of stuff. But actually, I think what's really amazing about the drivers of short-term thinking is how ancient they are. I mean, in fact, you can really go back at least 500 years. That's when the world started speeding up, when the first mechanical clocks were invented in Europe in the 14th century. They used to chime every hour, every quarter hour. By 1700, most clocks and watches had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. So time was getting speeded up. The future was coming closer and closer, and the, the clock became the ultimate machine of the Industrial Revolution, really. And then now look at us now. We've got our clocks everywhere, timepieces everywhere. It's, they're on our phones, on our computers, on our microwave ovens. So this short-termism is kind of wrapped into our culture, and it's really hard to get out of. That whole discussion about the evolution of how time has become more involved in our day, I found really interesting, and it, it impacts you know, the quality of our life, our ability to think long-term. You make a connection between the speed of information and the speed of transportation and the speed of time and how it's really speeding up in many respects. So it's making it a bit harder to think long-term. Jeff Bezos, who's founded Amazon, he's right here in Seattle where I'm recording from, and the person who came up with the buy now button is also started a foundation or is part of a foundation called the Long Now Foundation. And it's interestingly trying to get us to think longer term. That was one of the organizations I thought was really interesting that you talk about in the book. Can you talk about the Long Now Foundation and what it's designed to do and get us to think about? Sure. The Long Now Foundation was founded back in the 19, late 1990s. I'm a research fellow of the Long Now Foundation. And the whole idea of it is to try and get us to think longer term, to take responsibility for future generations, for people and planet, to start thinking beyond even our own lifetimes. And one of the Long Now Foundation's sort of cornerstone projects is something called the 10,000-year clock. And it's a clock which is being built at this moment, as we speak now, inside a limestone mountain in the Texas desert. And this clock is designed to stay accurate for 10,000 years. And you'll be able to hike through the desert to get there and then walk up steps cut into the mountainside, each of them representing a million years of geological time. When you go inside, you'll listen to a sound of 10 bells, which play in a different combination every single day for 10,000 years. It's been designed by the musician Brian Eno, the great producer of U2 and David Bowie. So in a way, the, the clock is like a secular altarpiece to a long-term thinking civilization or what Brian Eno, that musician, called the, the long now as opposed to our short now culture. And it so happens that Jeff Bezos is one of the main funders of this particular project. So that's what he's involved. And of course, there's an obvious kind of contradiction there, right? Here's the guy who may well be remembered more than anything else for inventing the buy now button, funding a, you know, a, a long-term project. And of course, you can kind of see where he's coming from, right? You know, a company like Amazon was losing money for years and years and years until it was successful. And that, of course, as an investment strategy requires a kind of a long-term view, but there's definitely some tensions in there. But certainly the Long Now Foundation really is all about trying to 
create a culture, get us to ask that question, how can we be good ancestors? Let's think about the legacies we want to leave. Yeah, I think one of the reasons Amazon is successful is Jeff Bezos is able to think long-term and challenges his team and his organization to think about the long-term payoffs, investing in customers, investing in infrastructure that's going to pay off over time. And you mentioned short-term trading. One of the apps that's really popular right now is called Robinhood, and it's sort of gamified investing. And the investing in options and short-term profits is way up right now. And we look to investors like Warren Buffett and long-term investors, Charlie Munger, that are looking at how do we invest in a company that's going to be around in in the long term and be successful. And they've traditionally been much more successful as investors than short-term trading. And so we're seeing that play out right now in the technologies, in the investing world. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting there is that certainly the way I look at it is that there are lots of companies and investors trying to look more long-term. But to me, the question is, well, what's the ultimate goal? You know, What are they trying to be long-term about? There's a famous quote from a former head of Goldman Sachs called Gus Levy. He said once, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. And certainly I look at that quote and I think, well, is that the kind of world I want to live in, a, a long-term world dominated by long-term greedy, where you know it's all based on making super profits and big, big growth, and it's not really taking into account the welfare of future generations, all those billions of people who'll be born in the future. So you know, I certainly, when I look around at, at various companies, I'm really impressed by the ones which have a long-term goal, which is about looking after the welfare of current and future generation, but staying within the boundaries of the planet, the one planet we know that sustains life. There's like a wonderful company, Swedish company called Houdini, which makes sportswear, and they actually make edible clothes, right? So you can buy a Houdini skiing jacket or hiking jacket, and it's totally compostable. It's organic, you know, cotton and stuff. They've actually got a composting facility in Stockholm. You throw your, your used jacket in there and you come back a year later, it's turned into soil and they've served their customers meals made from their old clothes. And it's a complete kind of closed loop circular economy. And that I think is really visionary long-term business thinking. This idea of sustainability is, you talk about it in the book as, I think it was Jonas Salk who challenged us to think about as our society matures that we'll have to take on different values. And one of them is sustainability. And this kind of gets to the idea of to what purpose do we think long-term? Why should we be thinking so long-term? Great question. I mean, Groucho Marx apparently once said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? And I think that's a real question that occurs in my mind. I think most people's minds, because here I am, I've got my kids you know, in the next room to me where I am now, and you know, I'm just dealing with what am I going to cook them for dinner. I'm not thinking 100 years ahead or 1,000 years ahead. But if I stop back and think for a moment, certainly something that motivates me and I think motivates a lot of people is thinking about the idea of legacy, that concept of, well, how am I going to be remembered when I die? Because in fact, I think most people, certainly psychology research has shown this over the last half century, once we tend to reach middle age, some general middle age between 35 or 50, we start thinking about how we're going to be remembered when we're gone because mortality makes us do that, that confrontation with death. And I think there's different ways that we can leave a legacy. I mean, some people want to leave what I think of as an egotistical form of legacy, like a Russian oligarch who wants a baseball stadium named after them or an art gallery or something. That's how they defy death. 
Most of us, I think, are really concerned with a familial legacy, wanting to leave things for our kids, you know, or our nephews or nieces, whether it's a home or passing on cultural traditions and languages and religion. But I think if we're really going to be good ancestors, we need to think more broadly about a transcendent form of legacy, about what I think of as the universal strangers of the future and trying to connect with them. And if you think about it, lots of cultures actually have quite a strong connection with future generations, and it's really part of their existential sustenance. So, you know, in many Native American communities, you know, in Iroquois, Lakota communities, is the idea of seventh generation decision making. You make your community decisions based on the impact seven generations ahead, maybe 150, 200 years. Or in a Maori culture in New Zealand, there's a concept called bakapapa, which sounds a bit rude. It starts with a WH, but it's pronounced with an F, bakapapa. And that's their idea of lineage. It's the idea that we're all connected in a great chain of life, going far into the past and long into the future. And the, the light happens to be shining on the here and now. We just got to shine it a bit more broadly and recognize that the the living, the dead, and the unborn are all here in the room with us. And I think this really relates to something fundamental about the good life, something that the ancient Greeks discovered and came out of ideas in the good life in the 17th, 18th century, which is that human beings are relational creatures. We care about our relationships with others, but we tend to think about relations with people around here today in the here and now. But actually, I think we also need to stretch out where our relationships go to look both into the past, which people often do, investigating their family trees, and that gives them a lot of meaning. But let's also, I think, start looking forward as well, like you know, Native American cultures, for example, and start connecting with those future generations. I know it's hard. We can't see them. We can't speak to them. We need to kind of imagine in their world. I love the idea of looking to the Native cultures for ideas and learning from how they think more in tune with nature, thinking longer term. But you actually brought up an example that got me thinking about my own culture, my own experience that I think listeners may relate to, and you call it the grandmother effect. And when I was growing up, I had my great-grandmother living in my house for a good five years before she died. And she was in her 80s. This was in the late 70s. So she was born in the 19th century. And I have a connection now to her through my memory and her stories, which extended even further back in time. And you talk about this grandmother effect as being a real process by which, a vehicle by which in our culture, in many cultures, these connections with the past and future generations are really held together by people like my great-grandmother or any grandmother in a family. So can you talk a little bit about the grandmother effect and, and also the imagination exercise that you describe in the book, which I thought was just so impactful? So the grandmother effect is actually a concept that comes out of evolutionary psychology, and it relates to the way that human beings, as we evolved, we situated ourselves in multi-generational groups. So, you know, a child would have parents and grandparents that that child would then grow up and maybe have, would know their own children, of course, maybe their grandchildren. So we're in a kind of five generation line in a sense. And what really fascinating research has shown is that those societies where the grandmothers play a big role, kids tend to actually live longer or they're less likely to die in childbirth. So actually, in an evolutionary sense, we developed uh, cultures or as a species to have grandmothers, you know, to have grandparents because they were depositories of knowledge. They cared for children. They helped find food when there was drought, this kind of thing. So 
those grandparents of ours and particularly grandmothers are really important in our evolutionary development. And of course, as you were saying, you know, they are part of our lives in terms of sharing stories and making us feel connected, giving us a sense of home. And the real question, I think, is, okay, how do we make that imaginative leap to the future, to our great-grandchildren or their grandchildren who are maybe not even born? And one of the things I describe in a book is a kind of a, a thought experiment, which I have been part of, been in workshops with, and then I've done it with others. But it basically goes something like this. In fact, why don't we just kind of do it for a moment? So what I'd like you to do, Sean, and anyone who's listening, just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to imagine in your mind's eye a young person in your life who you really care about. It could be a nephew or a niece or a godchild or one of your own kids or grandkids. Just picture their face. Got it. And now what I'd like you to do is to imagine them 30 years in the future. Think about their joys, the challenges they face. Have a look at their face. Look into their eyes. Sit with that for a moment. And now I'd like you to imagine them at their 90th birthday party. And they're surrounded by family and friends and loved ones and old work colleagues. And you look out the window of the room, you look at the world outside that they live in. And then you go back and you look into their 90 year old face. And then someone comes over and puts a tiny baby into their arms. And it's their first great grandchild. And they look into that great grandchild's eyes and they think to themselves, well, what would this child need to survive and thrive for the years and decades ahead? And now if you just open your eyes again and just think for a moment that that little baby could live well into the 22nd century. So their future isn't science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. And I think if we do these imaginative exercises, which I admit can be quite confronting, you know, if you've got a dark vision of the future and look out the window at that 90-year-old's world, it could be very apocalyptic. It could be full of the wildfires that are, you know, across so many parts of the world today, including in the US, of course. You know, when I first did that exercise, I was imagining my then 10-year-old daughter as a 90-year-old. And something really interesting happened. I mean, it was really confronting imagining her when she was 90. But what I realized, and this is the key to it, I think, is that she was not alone. She was part of a web of relationships of friends and family who were there to support her. And she was part of, a, of the web of the living world too, right? She needed air to breathe and food to eat and water to drink. So I, what I realized was that if I really care about my child long into the future, I have to care about all children and that wider world. And I think that's where kind of long-term thinking and sustainability start meeting, that we need to kind of prompt ourselves with these kind of imaginative exercises, because this is not the kind of stuff that we do in everyday life, what you do in boardroom meetings or in school classes. First of all, that's just a very powerful exercise. I just emotionally sort of went through that journey as you were talking. It really hits you. There's that one takeaway you just mentioned, which is as we imagine the person our child or our nephew or niece or someone that we care about at 90 years old, it's not just the shelter that they're living in or the immediate surroundings. They're going to be part of this environment, this, the clean air they breathe, the sustainability of the ecosystem they're in at that time is all going to be important to their health and their well-being, and it's dependent on decisions we make today. And then another takeaway that gets you to 
to think about and confront is your legacy. What have you passed on to that daughter or that son or that niece or nephew that they are now absorbing that wisdom that they are now going to hopefully pass on to that little baby that's in their arms. And it really ups the ante or forces you to confront, what am I doing today to pass that knowledge on, to be the best father I can be, to be the best community member, citizen, steward of the environment? And so I think it's a great exercise to really force us to answer the question that you really ask us to answer in the book, which is, how do we become good ancestors? Certainly, it does that for me as well. It raises those you know, really challenging questions of what am I doing and why? And something it connects to for me is this brilliant art project by a Scottish artist called Katie Patterson. And this is a project called Future Library. And it's a 100-year art project. And every year for the next 100 years, a famous author, a famous writer is depositing a book in the Future Library, which will remain completely secret until the year 2114 at which point the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. And the first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood and many other famous writers have donated since. But if you think about it, Margaret Atwood is never going to meet the readers. You know, she's never going to see it published in her lifetime. And it's kind of like a legacy gift to the future. And I think we can all ask ourselves, yeah, what legacies do we want to leave? What do I want to leave for my children? And everyone in those big networks uh, around them. And I think it also relates to another sort of fundamental aspect of what it is to live the good life, which is about having a sense of purpose. You know, if you go to the writings of someone like the existential psychotherapist, Viktor Frankl, you know, who was an Auschwitz survivor, he said, well, what we really need to live for the good life is to have a goal or what he called a concrete assignment or a transcendent goal, something bigger than ourselves that we really care about that gets us up in the morning. It could be finding a cure for cancer if you're a scientist. It could be keeping your family business alive. You know, all sorts of things can act as that transcendent goal or what the ancient Greeks called a telos, their word for a goal or an ultimate aim. So I think as individuals, we can think, okay, well, what am I trying to do? Who am I here for? Who am I working for? You know, and we can think, okay, maybe this is about current generations, but also future generations. Maybe it's something bigger and in fact, the great Carl Sagan, the astronomer, back in the 70s said that, you know, just as individuals need a sense of purpose, so does a whole society. And we can think to ourselves, okay, what should our goal be? I mean, certainly for me, it's about learning to live within the boundaries of this one planet rather than being like Elon Musk and running away to Mars. But certainly, I think when you've got that kind of goal, it's what gives you meaning, right? It gives you purpose. It gives you something to drive for. It needs to be something a bit bigger than yourself. You introduced this concept to me. I hadn't heard this before. I don't know if you coined it or not, but you called it the going beyond the ego boundary. The way you describe it in the book is we often think within just our own lifetime, what we can impact within our lifetime and within our own familial system. But that really is tied to our own ego in many ways. And if we can get beyond the ego boundary, which would be beyond maybe one lifetime or beyond our family, to think about our community, to think about what you just mentioned, being part of this earth, you know, the one earth that we have. And we have some examples of, in the past, human communities doing something like this. And you talk about cathedral thinking, which is another great term that I'm sure is going to stick with me after reading the book, you know, building something that's going to go beyond. 
I mean, absolutely. I mean, I like that phrase cathedral thinking too. I didn't invent it myself, but I kind of like the idea of trying to popularize concepts, which I think are really cool. And certainly cathedral thinking is one of them. And it obviously, you know, as you alluded to, it refers to those medieval cathedral builders in Europe who would start building these great religious edifices that they knew would never be finished within their own lifetimes, yet they kept at it anyway. So a famous example is Almminster in southwest Germany, which is a Lutheran church, actually. And in 1377, the, the good citizens of Ulm decided they wanted their own church. They were going to finance it themselves. Well, it took them more than 500 years. They didn't finish until the year 1890, probably the world's longest crowdfunding project. But if you think about it, human beings are embarking on these really long-term projects all the time. You see it in public works projects. So there's a famous example from Britain in the 19th century where the sewers that were built in Victorian London were built twice as big as they needed to be. And the great uh, engineer behind it, a guy called Sir Joseph Bazalgette, ensured that they were gigantic, these sewers, bigger than they needed to be, better quality than they needed to be. And that's why they're still used today. Right? That's a kind of maybe not cathedral thinking, maybe sewer thinking, I might call it. But again, it's this kind of long-term vision we often don't find in politics or in business or in everyday life. And I'm really inspired by those things. I mean, you know, there are examples around today, like in the Arctic Circle, there's this amazing science project called the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. And it's a depository of millions of seeds, which are being kept in an indestructible rock bunker in the Arctic Circle. And it's been designed to last a thousand years to preserve the world's plant biodiversity. I think that's an amazing example of cathedral thinking. And I think we can all think to ourselves in our own lives, in the businesses we're part of, or the organizations, communities we're part of, well, how can I be a cathedral thinker? Can I be thinking a hundred years ahead for the church I'm part of, or my kids' elementary school if I'm sitting on the board and putting solar panels on the roof, or whatever it happens to be? There's all sorts of ways where we can start trying to take a longer vision. And here's the amazing thing. It makes you feel good. You know, it's sort of good for you and good for the world. Exactly. It contributes to the good life in that way, in an individualistic perspective as well. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think these projects, although they're very inspiring, they sometimes leave the question of, well, I'm great the seed bank is happening, but what's my role in that? Or we're not building a cathedral in Seattle today. And your point about look at your own life, look at your own relationships, your own community, your organizations, just extend beyond the ego boundary, extend the thinking, apply the long-term thinking, bring that into your decision-making. It can have a big impact. Yeah. I mean, when you go to the supermarket, you can ask yourself, am I being a good ancestor? I mean, I sometimes go into my local supermarket and I'll pick up a pack of beans and I'll see that they've been flown from Kenya. And, you know, I live in England. Doesn't make sense for me to buy some string beans, which have been pumping fossil fuels in the air, which are going to be the legacy that I would be leaving for my children and their children. And I think, okay, actually, no, being a good ancestor means putting those down and buying something else, which is locally grown. You know, that's why people love going to their farmer's market and things like that, right? It's about, in a way, being a good ancestor and being a good community member. But I also think it's really important to bring this kind of long-term thinking into everyday life and everyday habits. You know, I cycle out with my kids to visit ancient trees that have been around for a thousand years. There's one about a mile from where I live, 
which is an old yew tree in a churchyard, maybe 1,200 or 1,300 years old, and you sit beneath it. You do you know, what the Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh once said, don't just do something, sit there. You know, sit under it, don't take a selfie, but just try and feel that ancientness and recognize that, hey, us humans are just an eye blink in the great cosmic story. And who are we to break it with our environmental degradation and technological risks? So I love going to those places with my kids. Or in fact, I was just recently on our summer vacation, and we went down to a, a local beach, not too far from where we are, and we were hunting for fossils along the beach and holding in our hands a 195-million-year-old belemite, which is like a little squid-like creature. I mean, it's only a tiny bit of rock. But as I was showing the kids, I was saying, look, no human being has ever gazed upon this rock, which just fell out of the cliffside. This was from the time of the dinosaurs, before the dinosaurs, absolutely incredible. And I think it's just those little everyday things which start getting us away from our phones, getting us away from our computers, and just thinking in a slightly longer expanded view of the world. I think those little excursions can be really powerful. I once had an opportunity while visiting Yosemite to go to the Maricopa Grove of the sequoia trees. And I stood beneath several of these trees, which were just awe-inspiring and enormous in their size. I think there's a basic human yearning to connect with our past. And through these living beings, we're connected to 500 years, 1,000 years ago. And it really touches you pretty deep to be around something like this. It can inspire you to, as you said, make some change in your day-to-day because you reconnect with these wonderful living beings or fossils or whatever it is. You mentioned another one, the Euphington White Horse. Maybe you could talk about that because I found that amazing. It's not far from your house. Is that right? Right. It's actually there, not Uffington, but Uffington. It's spelt Uffington with a U at the front. So that the Uffington White Horse is this amazing Bronze Age sculpture. So it's 3,000 years old, and it's a gigantic horse which is about 100 feet long, which has been carved into a chalk mountainside. So it's green grass around, and then you see this sort of white portrait of a horse you know, from the side. It can be seen for miles around. And over the last thousand years, at least, we know that local villagers have been going up there every year or a few years to do a ceremony, what they call chalking the horse. And what they do is they take out weeds from it, and then they bash in new bits of white chalk so that it remains pristine and you can see it. And I'm now part of a group which goes every year to re-chalk the horse as part of this ancient ceremony. And, you know, we're sitting in the sun and bashing it in there. In fact, unfortunately, we couldn't do it this year because of COVID, but we did it last year and we'll do it next year. And we'll do it for decades after that. Well, as long as I live anyway. And I think this is all about maintenance. It's about looking after stuff. And I think there's something really beautiful in that, actually, to look after our cultural heritage, to look after even our memories. And so I really love that ritual aspect of re-chalking the white horse. In fact, I'd like to kind of be involved in more stuff like that. And in a way, if you go and visit an ancient tree every month, stand under those sequoias once a year even, it's a bit like re-chalking the horse. It's the white horse of Uffington. It's about kind of connecting with that sense of, you know, what's called deep time. And I think that, you know, again, it's, as you say, that we are so caught in our ego boundaries. And of course, doing what I want, you know, the me part of us is a real part of us. But as 
know, the philosopher in the 18th century, David Hume, once said, we are both serpents and doves. You know, we're driven by the me and the we. You know, we are an incredibly social creatures as well as being individualistic creatures. You know, ultimately, you can have gourmet meals every night eating alone, but in the end, you probably would rather somebody sitting there with you. And I think that's really a deep part of who we are. And I think in these kind of long-term rituals, we can connect with people today, but also connecting with people tomorrow. I'd like to talk a little bit about how we think about time, if we can. And you mentioned that we tend to think about time as an arrow in Western civilization. We tend to think about it as an arrow pointing into the future, and it's very linear, whereas many native cultures and indigenous cultures think about it more as a cycle or a circle. What can we gain from thinking more in a circular, more natural pattern than as more of a a linear model of time? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I do think that kind of linear idea or time as an arrow is the dominant one in our culture. We think about the past, the present, and the future like a kind of line. And as you say, many cultures in the past, and still some indigenous cultures today, have this more circular or cyclical view of time. So rather than worrying so much about what's going to happen tomorrow or in a month or in in a few weeks or whatever it is, they're thinking more of connections with natural cycles like cycles of the moon or cycles of the season, solar years and things like that. So for example, if you go to the Indonesian island of Bali, they have a calendar called the Pokawan calendar. And it's a calendar which is based on cycles, lots of cycles based on the moon particularly. And the way that it actually really influences the way that they live. So when these various cycles happen or cycles within cycles, like moons and seasons, when they coincide, they have what are called full days, F-U-L-L, full days where they have lots of religious ceremonies and community meetings and things. And then on other days, they call them empty days. They're days where you don't actually sit around and do that much. And so as anthropologists have described it, they live life more in terms of sort of pulses of activity and non-activity, sort of engagement and chilling out, as it were. And I think that's a really different way than most of us are thinking, because the arrow of time is always pushing us towards achievement and climbing ladders and all that kind of thing. And, you know, let's get in touch with these cycles. You know, instead of the fiscal year, let's think of the, the seasons, you know, or instead of that tax year, let's think of the moon cycles. And I think this is really important too, because again, it connects us with the natural world. It connects us with nature because we impose our own artificial cycles on top of what we find on planet Earth. I think incorporating a few days a month or whenever we can, a day where we run on a more natural cycle can be really refreshing. I just had the opportunity to do some fly fishing and I spent the day just walking in a river and fishing, mostly alone, but there were friends close by, but not in the same proximity. And at the end of the day, when my friends and I got together and we were reflecting on the day, what we talked about was how differently we felt going through a day that was more natural. The rhythms we followed were more moving through a flow of a river and going from a hole to a hole and seeing nature. And it's so different from the day today that most of us live where we're going from Zoom call to Zoom call or we're under the tyranny of the clock. And I just found it so refreshing and invigorating to be on that more natural cycle that when you wrote about it, it really spoke to me. I'm not a fishing person myself, but 
friends of mine who are into fishing often describe that kind of timelessness that goes on as well. Or they're, they're looking at the fish, they're tracking the sun, they're sort of engaged with nature in a kind of very real way. So there's a real sense of presence, but there isn't that sense of rush, of turbulence, and so on. And I think, you know, of course, we can all find our different ways of trying to do something like that. I mean, weirdly, I get something similar from that from my obsession with playing tennis. I'm so engaged in the moment that I forget all moments. There's a kind of timelessness to it when I'm really engaged in it. I think that's what creativity and spontaneity partly give you, that it's one way of stepping out of time. But I certainly think that that engagement with nature is such a great way of challenging that tyranny of the clock. And I'm all for taking digital diets, leaving your phone away for a couple of weekends. In fact, I'd love to do that with my kids who they've just got their first phones, their 11-year-old twins. We're trying to teach them, how do you not become an addict to linear time and to high speed the buy now button? That is a huge challenge. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with as far as how to be a good ancestor, how to think more long-term, how to grab onto a more transcendent, aspiring goal and incorporate some of these ideas into our lives to live the good life. At the end of my book, The Good Ancestor, I've got what I call a menu of conversation. On that menu, there are these questions about long-term thinking, like what kind of legacy would you like to leave to your family, your community, or the living world? Or what have been your most profound experiences of deep time? Or what should the relationship be between current generations and our obligations to future generations? And if I'm going to leave people with any message, it's this, is to talk to people, have conversations about intergenerational thinking and long-term thinking. Talk to your family and friends and kids and work colleagues. Have a conversation about, hey, what would it mean for us to be a good ancestor? Because I think that we start changing the world through conversation getting other people's ideas, sharing our own. And I believe that we can kind of change the world one conversation at a time. So get out there and have conversations even with strangers about being a good ancestor. That's probably a pretty good antidote to the buy now button. Well, I love the idea of changing the world one conversation at a time. And this has just been a deeply satisfying and fulfilling conversation. Where can people find out more about your book, your writings, and your work? Well, people can buy the book, The Good Ancestor, at any website or local bookshop if you can. People can follow me on Twitter at Roman Krisnarik or go to my website if you can spell romankrisnarik.com. You'll get there or just put in a search engine, Roman, The Good Ancestor, and you'll find me and say hello, please. Great. Well, thank you for being on The Good Life. Oh, it's been a huge pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for a really enjoyable and stimulating discussion. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.